This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I'm joined today by my guest, Natasha Lasky. Natasha is a writer and filmmaker, and her latest book is Britney Spears' Blackout, a recent installment in the 33 and a third music book series published by Bloomsbury Academic. Natasha, thank you for joining me today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about all things Britney. <laughs> me too. But first, let's. Uh, can you share with us what your book is about overall? Certainly. So... Um, Britney Spears has had many albums over the course of her career, but one of them I think stands out as particularly relevant, which is Blackout, which is an album that came out in 2007, sort of at the peak of her, her most, you probably heard about her the most during that time in her life and not always in the best way. Um, you know, she was sort of in the midst of what people call her public breakdown. She was seen, She got a DUI. She was seen, you know, carrying her kid in her lap on in the car. Like there are all sorts of these like minor, uh, maybe not minor tragedies, but minor sort of scandals that are written up in the press in a big way. And in the midst of this sort of maelstrom of public attention, she released this album Blackout, which in many ways responded to this attention, recontextualized it in various ways, and remains seminal in her, in her career, not only because of its really forward-looking sound, but also because of the way it changed the way that we see her as a celebrity. And so the book traces the different ways in which this album changed how we see her. So the album was released in 2007, along with uh, some of the issues you talked about there. But let's let's go a little bit before that. You write that in November 2004, Britney Spears had free time for the first time in her adult life. What was happening for Britney at that time? Right. So she had just come out with her most recent album at that time, In the Zone, um, which was her one of her more experimental albums to date. She was playing around with a lot of different forms. Like she was she was trying out dance hall. She was trying out ballads. She was writing music for the first time. I mean, she'd always written music, but it was the first time that she had a songwriting credit with a song that was fully hers, which was Every Time, which is this very beautiful p- piano ballad. Um, but so she does that. She goes on tour and now she's for the first time in her life, you know, she's been working since she was 
I want to, well, she was signed to a label when she was 16, but she was also on Star Search. She was also on the Mickey Mouse Club. Like this woman had been working from prepubescence through her teen years and now into her early adulthood. And so, you know, she's writing music for the, for the first time under her own name. There's a sort of a world of possibilities that could have opened up for her at that time. And then sort of more importantly, she could take a break. Like she didn't have to be working all the time. If she didn't want to be, she could date. She could have kids. She could get married. And she did do all of those things in addition to, you know, going back to work. But for a while, in between 2004 and 2007, she didn't put out any music, which, you know, was probably a blessing and a curse for her. And that, again, it's important to take a break, but also it allowed the press to really seize upon her personal life in a way that was not always the most positive thing. So in those early years of her career, she was seen often as a soft-spoken and polite teenage girl, the embodiment Mm -hmm. of the girl-next-door trope. However, she challenged those tropes in the studio. Can you talk more about that? Well, I mean, so I think that she was always incredibly ambitious and very clear-headed about what she wanted when it came to, you know, what she wanted her music to sound like. Um, Her collaborators, you know, Max Martin, among the most famous, who is this sort of super producer from Sweden, who's, you know, if you think of pretty much any top one, top 100, top one hit of uh, the last, whatever, like 20 years, He's probably produced a good chunk of them. Um, And he frequently described her as a genius just because she had this sort of preternatural ability to sort of know what she wanted her voice to sound like. She was a great curator. She she picked really interesting producers. She often wanted to experiment. Like you think about a song like Toxic, for example, which incorporates like like a string sample and surf rock guitars and, you know these kind of low pulsating synths and you're sort of like, what? This is all the same song? But, you know, Britney was was really thinking about interesting people to collaborate with. Um, and in a similar way, she was a real professional. Like, she would go into the studio, she would do things for as many times as it would take. While some um, critics would consider that quality as kind of a demure like she's not taking up space she's just doing what people tell her to do in actuality the people that she worked with when you listen to interviews with them they are like this quality is actually is not that she's a pushover it's just that she's really good at collaborating with people and i think that skill is really undervalued in you know the history of pop production It's incredibly undervalued uh, when you especially consider her origins as an artist, because you write that Britney's talent occupied a point in time within the pop landscape where labels were looking for divas to follow the likes of Tony Braxton and Mariah Carey. But Jive, Britney's label, didn't want to sign black pop divas because of the industry stereotype that they were expensive and risky. So someone like Britney Spears became ideal because they embodied the image of a nice white girl who wouldn't question authority. You know, that's something that's been consistently like in that narrative from the beginning, despite this being this actual artist who who her collaborator who who her collaborators are saying she's an actual true visionary. Can you talk more about that? I'm not quite sure I understand your question. Would you mind reframing it a little bit? Like are you sure. asking about her whiteness specifically or about yeah, clear I would love some clarification there. 
So my my interest in bringing up that question was just to talk more about that dichotomy that you have these very talented pop divas who are women of color mm-hmm. who had this unfair image placed on them, but that Britney comes in to fill a kind of perceived market need that we can have a diva that won't come with all this cultural and societal baggage that we're then placing onto them. That's interesting. I think I wouldn't necessarily have framed it that way. I think I do mention, as you bring up that, in particular, this is from this is from reporting from John Seabrook, the New Yorker's pop reporter, who did a real deep dive on, you know, the studio politics of Jive at the time. But they were primarily an R and B label. I think they had signed um, Aaliyah. They had signed a tribe called Quest. Like they were working with. Um, mostly black musicians and mostly in hip hop until we sort of get to the backstreet boys and, you know, like sort of, you know, white people invading that space a little bit more. Um, and I think that in that way, um, Britney's whiteness was really key to signing her and that many of the qualities that they liked most about her when she stepped into the studio was that they felt that she was going to defer to authority, that she was going to allow them to do whatever they wanted. And whether or not that was actually true is up for debate. Maybe more strongly, it's not that up for debate. You know, Brittany did have a large amount of agency in her own artistic identity. But again, at the time, that's complicated because, you know, if you are growing up in in a, you know, mode where you're incredibly young, you know, these older dudes are telling you what to do. It's hard. I feel like if I were in that situation, I would have a hard time separating what my own desires were from the desires of the label. And so I think with that in mind, you know, getting back to sort of the original genesis of your question, yeah, the label was really excited about having, you know, a diva, quote unquote, who wasn't that much of a diva or didn't seem to be that much of a diva. But at the same time, that that story wasn't always true. And it also sort of colored the rest of her career in a way that was very, it was very difficult for her to be seen as someone who is an artist on her own right and not just a puppet being manipulated by her label. And all this is uh, coming after a several year period where she's not releasing music, it's 2007, and she yeah. offers a glimpse into a newer, more independent Britney in the form of a song called Mona Lisa. Can you tell us about that song? Certainly. So um, Britney was working on this song called Mona Lisa. She had announced it, I think, in either November or December of 2004. Um, she just showed up at this like pop radio station in Burbank at like three in the morning, barefoot, holding a CD, being like, this is my new song. It's called Mona Lisa. Um, and so, of course, the host at the time, who I think was filling in for the main host, was like, we have to play this. Like, you can't not play Britney's new song. That's a demo. That's a total exclusive. And it's a very interesting song. Um, she had used the pseudonym Mona Lisa in the past when talking about like her directorial efforts and her music videos. Um, So it sort of was this kind of, in a coded way, autobiographical song. And it is about, you know, how much she struggles to be in the spotlight and about how, you know, she's been famous for pretty much her entire life. And 
it's sort of a window into how exploitative that system is. And that was a very different kind of sound from her, not only because it was a little bit more stripped down, you know, a little bit, a little, a few more acoustic instruments. Um, and also she had sung about fame before. Famously, she has this song called Lucky, where she talks about, quote unquote, a girl named Lucky, who uh, very similarly to her is struggling to be in the spotlight. But that song is sort of sad and plaintive. And meanwhile, Mona Lisa is has this kind of fuck you energy. You know, it has this anger that kind of hints that she knows what's going on. She's empowered about it. And she's not going to, you know, she's not going to listen to anyone's opinions about who she is and what she has to say. So I think that was a real new thing for her, especially also to sort of show up at this radio station and issue the whole rigmarole of releasing a studio album in that period where you have to, you know, do interviews and red carpets and like music videos and this whole promotional apparatus but she was like, no, fuck it. I'm going to show up with my chihuahua at three in the morning at this radio station and, you know, make my voice heard quite literally. So Mona Lisa is expressed, you know, this concept of truth through fiction, and she wanted to appear more vulnerable with the song. But when Blackout came out in 2007, it didn't sell as well as her previous albums. And critics suggested is it was as if she drunkenly recorded the album in a stupor. Why were critics saying this despite her intention with the album? I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, part of it is I think her, well, I would say a lot of it is her reputation at the time. Like, you know, people thought that she was on various drugs. Um, there's not been a whole, I think, you know, when you look at the tabloids at the time, people weren't necessarily sure what she was on or whether she was on anything at all, but people didn't necessarily think she was at her most lucid. Um, and, you know, seeing, reconciling this confident album um, that's very self-aware and very forward-looking with the person that they were seeing on the cover of tabloids and on TMZ was difficult. And so it was easier for them to be like, you know, Britney wasn't even there for the recording of her album. You know, she, she, it was all her producers and she didn't do anything. And I think the other thing that really contributed to that narrative is sort of what we were talking about before, right? Where there wasn't a lot of precedent, you know, although Mona Lisa had this kind of truncated spur of the moment release, her as an artist, her as someone who's writing her own music, who has something to say about her own career, that narrative didn't have a lot of precedent. Just A, in the way that people were thinking about pop music more broadly, as pop music became more industrialized and producers kind of took over as the auteur figures in pop music, like Timbaland, like Pharrell, like Max Martin, and then also with Britney specifically, because she was thought of as sort of this ditz. Um, very wrongly. So we'll go into the media frenzy and Britney's public perception a little bit later, but I want to talk about the production behind this album. And you've mentioned Max Martin a few times. Um, you, this is an era of pop music that's very producer driven. And you say that no one defines this era more than Max Martin. So please tell us where he comes from and how he comes into the picture for Blackout. Right. So um, Max Martin comes into Blackout kind of in an oblique way or kind of 
the fact that he's not on Blackout at all is itself very notable because he and Brittany have this very tied career. Like their come-ups are very intertwined in that um, Max Martin's first big hit is um, Baby One More Time, the iconic, you know, Britney's first mega hit and this, you know, late 90s, early 2000s defining sound that was really kind of, you know, put into the world with this with this first song. And he is an interesting figure because he has this sort of monomaniacal control over his songs. He's really obsessed with this thing called comping, which is when, you know, you're a vocalist, you record all sorts of takes, and then you stitch together the best ones. But comping is this sort of very granular um, instantiation of that where they you take you craft a word or a line of the song syllable by syllable which like can you imagine if if it were possible to do multiple takes of this podcast and you had to stitch it together you know word by word not even word by word um that's a super tedious process but max martin it gives you the sort of it gives you a sense of what his personality is is like as a producer and that he loves these details um you think also about a song that he produced um what is that song called the one not bye 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 by the backseat backstreet boys what's the you are my fire i want it that way i want it that way okay yes. good <laughs> um i can't believe i forgot that anyway but that song's lyrics are pretty crazy and they don't make a lot of sense but the way that Max Martin wrote that song, he was like, it doesn't matter. It just, I need to craft these sort of syllable by syllable in order to sound the best and to be the most, you know, earwormy, the most catchy. And so he's known for really having this formula, approaching it very, I mean, scientifically isn't a word that has a lot of meaning in this type of a context. But you know what I mean? As if there's this like objective platonic ideal standard of a pop song that he tries to replicate every time and that has made him super successful um you know he's he still he still works with taylor swift he still works with ariana grande and because what he focuses on is the foundation of a track the songwriting rather than sort of the surface details he's really versatile and can incorporate all these different trends like dubstep drops and that kind of thing into his music and so as he became more and more successful over the course of his early career, you know, if he was considered the monomaniacal auteur producer, that left Britney in sort of a more deferential, I don't know, subordinate position. And I think critics used that dynamic, even though it wasn't always historically accurate, as a way of sort of discussing their fears about well, if the producer has all this power, what does that mean for the artists themselves? Do they matter? Are they just little sound waves that people manipulate? You know, and I think in that dynamic came to inform pop music more broadly. 
you write about Max Martin extensively, not just his contributions to pop music or this album, but to the concept of like a producer as auteur. And you draw parallels between him and Phil Spector, which is rather alarming, uh, <laughs> considering that uh, the latter was convicted of murder. Certainly. But you Right. But you, you exemplify, you say they exemplify the idea of being control freaks with tendencies that led to dangerous consequences for young women. And there's a great quote from your book that I want to read. And it's quote, this paradigm proffers a woman's life as raw material that a man must transform into art, that any woman in the spotlight has a man behind her pulling the strings, end quote. So despite that work and that level of commitment and that kind of over controlling dynamic, it was Brittany who bore the brunt from critics. Why? Well, yeah, I think a, to be clear, although I do draw this parallel between Max Martin and Phil Spector, Max Martin seems like a very lovely person and does not, has no history of abuse that I know of. So I, by no means am accusing him of any of that. Um, I, I think I use that comparison more to say that this dynamic has in the past kind of exemplified actual abuse, which is, you know, very literal in the sense of Phil Spector. Um, and so I think, again, I'm not I think whether or not like if hit, if Baby One More Time was not by Britney Spears and was by, like, say, TLC um, which is who the song was originally pitched to, would it would we still have this, you know, narrative that was really apparent in criticism around Britney at the time that Max Martin was the auteur, Britney was, you know, being disempowered? I'm not sure. I mean, I think, you know, the fact that she was so young, the fact that she was very sexual, it seemed, in her music and in her public image I think that made people really uncomfortable because she was a minor and it was sort of unclear whether how much this was her idea and so I think that got mapped back onto her music in a big way in ways that are both I think fair and unfair um I think the thing that feels like the most clear kind of realization of the fears of exploitation that critics had was the relationship between Dr. Luke and Kesha um, in that it is alleged that Dr. Luke raped Kesha and, you know, had all sorts of control over her body and abused her in these various ways. Um, this trial is still very much up for debate in a big way. I, for what it's worth, I do believe Kesha and what she said and you know it's shocking to hear but there is a way in which this dynamic you know Dr. Luke was Max Martin's protege and this the the thing that he did with Britney which is scoop up this young woman unknown and sort of make her a star but in a way that preserves his power that dynamic was exploited into horrific ends with his relationship with Kesha and so I think I think there's a it's a complicated thing where it's like in Max Martin in Max Martin's case this this dynamic that could turn into abuse was not was not realized but in his orbit there was this precedent 
it's all about elements of control. And you and you touch upon a couple of different things there that we will get to later on, such as mm-hmm. Brittany's uh, sexuality and the projection of it, as well as how the system changes to apply control over a woman's autonomy. Because um, there's a lot of great things I want to talk with you about there. Of course. But this idea about proffering a woman's life as raw material, one of the raw materials that you write extensively about uh, Brittany is her voice, uh, not just in a kind of um, existential sense, but literally her actual voice. And mm-hmm. behind the production of the album, the first chapter you open with a dis- uh, with discussing a speech psychologist study about a way some teen girls talk called vocal fry. Can you tell us what vocal fry is and why critics and pundits in the media and even parents were upset by vocal fry? Yeah. Um, Vocal fry is when at the end of your sentences, typically, um, you lower your voice and it you can hear the vocal cords kind of flutter. I'm sure we've both done vocal fry over the course of this interview, but um, and I don't know if I could replicate the sound on purpose, but I think I even kind of just did it. Like it's like this dip down, it's kind of a growly, rough texture. Um And this was the source of a very minor moral panic where all of these, you know, op-eds were published in places like The Atlantic, where various critics who tended to be, you know, 40 or above would be like, you know, young women are using this, you know, vocal fry and it's making them sound really dumb and it's sort of you know, vocal fry is linked with like Kim Kardashian, Paris Hilton, and of course, Britney Spears in a huge way. One could say that Britney Spears' signature vocal technique is vocal fry, which is that sort of, I don't know, there's, you hear it on the very first words she ever sings um, when she's signed to Jive, which is like, oh, baby, baby, the first lyric of, um, of uh, baby one more time. And, yeah, so I think that in some ways I argue that um, the fact that vocal fry is associated with these, you know, seeming bimbos is what makes it annoying, unlistenable, negative. You know, I think it's very similar to discussions of using the word like as a filler word or up talk, um, despite the fact that, for example, it's impossible to use up talk and vocal fry at the same time because one requires your voice to raise and the other (laughs) requires your voice to lower. But, you know, they're all the ways that teen girls talk, so they must be annoying. Um, And so I think that's how Britney relates to this whole thing. I appreciated that angle about Britney's voice um, that you talked about in your book and with that answer. But you also go into other concepts as well that I thought were fascinating in your book. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, saying that critics of Britney's voice on Blackout say she's being inauthentic and hiding her real voice and that this is a problem because these critics say it encourages young women to conceal their true selves. But you write that Blackout reminds us that no one has just one voice. And so I I want to get your thoughts about authenticity and the demand for it in music from the perspective of Britney's voice. Totally. Um, so I think that this crit- this criticism that Britney is not using her real voice has been true since the early days. And, you know, she talks about this in Rolling Stone when Baby One More Time comes out, where she's like, I wanted to get this rusty voice, so I stayed up all night so that my voice would be kind of sexy. And, 
you can see these you if you listen to or you see videos of her on Mickey Mouse Club on Star Search she has this super deep kind of Tony Braxton voice that is totally anathema to the voice that she uses on um the rest of her discography which makes people have these kind of conspiratorial attitudes that you know she has this real voice that she's concealing that this isn't the real her and yet i think there's a different way to see that like i think it's interesting that we as a society i suppose privilege this like authenticity as a value in art that in some ways can be just as constraining as you know other types of aesthetic you know demands um and that there's something very liberating about being able to have your voice do all sorts of different things um you know her her very her breathiness on i'm a slave for you or you know her falsetto and toxic like she's a chameleon she can do all these different things that doesn't necessarily mean she is inauthentic or she's unable to sing, it means that she's excited and experimental. And I think in a similar way, criticisms of vocal fry, like we just talked about, are not acknowledging the fact that vocal fry is expressive rather than, you know, concealing. Like it's a, you, it's fun to use different qualities in your voice to play up different emotional registers or different connotations. Like it's part of the joy and the art of speaking and singing. And so I think it was important to me to draw out how those types of decisions are artistic in themselves. And I think it's particularly applicable to Blackout because Blackout uses very intense vocal modification, a lot of autotune, a lot of, you know, very digital sounds in that her voice often sounds very robotic. It sounds kind of inhuman. And people were very quick to be like, this is inauthentic, she can't really sing, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, this wasn't necessarily pitch correction. This wasn't, uh, I don't know, reparative. Rather, it's expressive and it does a certain kind of aesthetic work. So it seems that regardless of, of Britney's talent and the criticisms about her voice or the production of the album or what have you, during this time, she's having a very public mental health crisis. And it seems that the reason why she may be a product of that time is that at this time, the internet was a boon for the business of celebrity culture with social media and gossip blogs becoming an increasing presence. And this is something that you explore extensively, um, this idea of raunch culture and celebrity culture at that time. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about that? And in what ways was that negatively impacting Britney's career? Totally. I mean, so I think the explosion of, paparazzi photography of tabloids of sort of celebrity culture in the early aughts um and i guess throughout the aughts um i tie back to a series of different things part of it is the internet as you mentioned where it was this new frontier where traditional media was struggling to get a hold on or able a struggle to effectively profit off of and so it allowed kind of new upstarts like TMZ, although that had um, a lot of corporate money behind it, and, you know, more famously Paris Hil Perez Hilton. Um, 
to really compete with these legacy media outlets in this kind of unprecedented way. And so there was this, there were all of these little guys and big guys fighting for the newest information about any celebrity, no matter how granular it was. And also because you could now be exposed to celebrity culture at all times from any device, from any, you know, on the newsstands, in the TV, on the bar, you know, on your computer, um, you, they were, they were able to profit off of your attention in new and surprising ways that are less surprising now, but were surprising then. Um, and at sort of at the same time, or a little bit before that, there was a series of um, conglomerations between like Disney and ABC and Viacom CBS and all of these different things that also allowed for this huge boom in celebrity content because they're trying to promote synergy across their different properties. So you'd be watching CNN and you'd see, you know, tabloid sponsored Britney content. And you'd be, you know, if you're someone who considers yourself a serious person and likes to watch the news and doesn't want to be exposed to celebrity content, it's easier to think that, you know, they're everywhere and America's in decline because all they care about are, you know, blonde women and what they do. Um, and so that is sort of one sphere of things. And I think raunch culture is really able to take off the ground, which by raunch culture, I sort of refer to this boom in media and, you know, celebrity around I want to say sluts, but in a positive way, perhaps, or like bimbos, maybe more accurately, like Paris Hilton, Britney to a certain extent, How to Make Love Like a Porn Star by Jenna Jameson comes out around this time, Playboy as a, like the, the Playboy Bunny reality show, who's, which name I'm forgetting, but Playboy as a brand blows up in this new and exciting way. Um, porn is more more available than ever on the internet. Um, and I think because of that, there are all sorts of concerns about are women being exploited? Do you have, you have these shows called, you have these shows like Girls Gone Wild where, you know, there's these scenes of kind of ambiguous consent about whether these like drunk women want to be flashing people. But at the same time, there's also this sense that many of the women involved in these so-called raunchy behaviors maintained that they were empowered, that they had chosen to do this, that they weren't, you know, being exploited in all of these ways. And so that was this big conversation that was being had at that time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, it's really fascinating to look back in hindsight when you write about that in your book, because we're talking about 2007. It's almost 2023 right now, and we've seen how 
how just pervasive toxicity on the internet has been with its influence in um, fostering white supremacist and Christian nationalist views. But we've also seen how social media can break down the barriers and how artists connect with their listeners and their fans. And we'll be talking about Britney's conservatorship much later much later, but I want to get a sense of how her relationship with the media, especially experiencing such a traumatic event at the boon of social media, how that's changed uh, 16 years later. That's so interesting. Um, so I think the first thing to note is that Brittany has always been a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of using the internet to connect directly with her fans. Um In 2006, and a little bit before that, from I guess around 2004 to 2006, she had a blog um, called Letters of Truth, where she talks about, she just sort of, if you're in her fan club, you can pay like 25 bucks a month or something like that to get to read her unfettered thoughts. And she she writes little poems about various things in her life. Like she writes about her Thanksgiving. She writes about... um, how much she hates her label, which is kind of crazy because you just get a sense that they're not really monitoring that because they would normally want to shut that down. Um, And then she also had this reality show very short lived with her ex-husband, Kevin Federline called chaotic, which a very appropriate title, um, which was basically a vlog. Like she, there were confessionals, I suppose, but there weren't, camera people she filmed the whole thing she turns around her digital camera to see her own face um and it is it is really kind of fun to watch if you don't think about all the bad things that happened afterwards and that you see sort of a more unfettered Brittany who is interested in sort of shaping her own narrative for her own fans in a way that was very ahead of its time pre-social media then as you know these large conglomerates and these tabloids came to see her as profitable as someone who people are very interested in knowing about on a moment by moment basis that story gets ripped out of her hands and is now being controlled or was at the time being almost entirely controlled by people who did not have her best interests in mind at all and who saw her as sort of a cash cow you know There's a statistic I cite in the book that I don't totally remember off the top of my head, but photos of Britney generated millions and millions of dollars or like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars per photo. Like people, that shit was gold. And, you know, there are all of these quotes from people who ran tabloids at the time who are like, we rely on Britney for X percent of our income, just her. And so when you're being used in that way, it's hard to have a good relationship with the press. And I think to this day, you know, all of these documentaries have come out about her that are ostensibly very sympathetic, but she's like, just move on. Stop talking about me. I'm done. And I deeply get that. You know, in some ways people ask me, oh, do you want her to read the book? Like, do you think she would like it? And I'm like, if I were in her position, I would never want to read anything that's been written about me ever again. You know, even though I think... My book is very positive towards her since that is how I feel. Um, And then now she has, she uses social media in a huge way. I think a very chaotic way, as many people would probably agree. But 
it is it is interesting to see her kind of return to how she was when she was 24, 25 and just starting to communicate with her fans more directly. So in the spirit of Britney's relationship with paparazzi and what you were saying earlier with other aspects of ranch culture, such as Girls Gone Wild, you explore the concept of consent in your book extensively. And despite being a sex symbol, the public didn't seem to accept that Britney was not always willing to be photographed in a way that validated her critics. So I I was wondering if you could tell me how and why the media systematically failed to recognize consent at this time. I guess, in other words, how did this fit into the overall culture of that era? Yes. So, yeah, as you say, I do draw a a comparison between the conversations around sexual consent that arose during this peak raunch culture time and also the, you know, ambiguities of consent around being photographed, around being in public more broadly. And that I think there's kind of a an understandable but troubling lack of nuance between how people make decisions, how those decisions change moment to moment, and how that affects whether or not they feel like they have agency over their decisions, whether or not they feel like they can make decisions with informed consent. And so I think in a similar way, in Britney's case, you know, she does have a, she's a, you know, sexy person and she does like flaunting her body and, you know, talking about her sex life and what have you. But, you know, it seems kind of simple to say this now, but at the time it was very confusing. It, that's not always the case. You know, when she feels like she has control over the imagery, like in the Baby One More Time music video where she was like, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to wear. This is how I see this. She feels more comfortable expressing her sexuality in that way. Whereas on this, on the Rolling Stone cover in 2000, where she's photographed kind of in her bra clutching a purple Teletubby um, with these kind of pedophilic (laughs) undertones, she was like, I didn't feel super comfortable in those moments. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, And I think in a similar way, um, Brittany in a way that I really respect, has always been, for the most part, quite nice to paparazzi. You know, the paparazzi aren't the ones who are writing the stories. They aren't picking the assignments. They're And they're more often than not recent immigrants. You know, they're very low on the totem pole of power, although they tend to get the majority of the blowback from, um, you know, following celebrities so closely. And she was often very very kind to them. But at the same time, there were times where she didn't want to be photographed, where she felt like the attention was overwhelming and she did lash out at them. And I think, you know, that type of ambiguity can be hard to understand how to deal with on a moment by moment basis. Um, but I think in the name of ethics, you you tend to try and figure it out, right? Like we have this discussion about sexual consent all the time, right? Where it's like, sometimes it might feel awkward to get explicit consent. And yet that is worth doing for all of these reasons. But, um, you know, in the context of the paparazzi is much easier to not have to ask for consent or not have to be like, Brittany, how are you feeling today? Do you want to take a photo? Because it was so lucrative to get 
photos. And it was in some ways even more lucrative to get photos that she wouldn't have wanted to have taken of her, um, you know, in various publications. So I think that's a way in which consent played out in both of those arenas. The Rolling Stone cover was a huge moment in Britney's career, and it's one that she says when she realized she was a sex symbol. And we've talked a little bit about that cover, but can you tell us more about the response to it? I mean, I think um, that image is pretty is a pretty weird one to come back to. You know, I think like people often have called her you know, Lolita-esque in her, um, in the ways that they talk about her, especially at that time. And I think, you know, forgetting that Lolita was an exploited character, (laughs) you know? Um, And so I think, you know, it was, it's uncomfortable to sort of confront the ways in which we sexualize minors head on in that way. And I think that shock value was very profitable for Rolling Stone and perhaps in some ways for Britney herself, although it, you know, I would probably argue that the costs outweigh the benefits in that regard. But um, yeah, I think that, I think it sort of was the beginning of a pearl clutching parent response to Britney in that, you know, because she has always had such a, huge fan base and especially at that time of young women um parents were like oh no our young our young daughters will be sexual in this way that they're not ready for or that will be bad for them in the long run and they would sort of blame they would sort of blame Britney for that um while ignoring these larger structural concerns yeah the larger structural concerns are are very important to to keep in mind because this Rolling Stone cover exemplifies that Britney is often seen in very conflicting uh, dichotomous terms. She's seen as both a te- teenager and a career woman, bimbo and good Christian, corporate tool and artist, and it's her sexuality that's been that dominates much of this conversation and with such a moral intensity. We're talking about a media system that is much larger than Britney and is beyond Britney's control. So why was Brittany the one who was criticized by parents and pundits despite that exploitation? Well, I think that these these ambiguities around consent, these ambiguities around, um, you know, how she's influencing younger people and also these larger conversations about what does it mean to be empowered, you know, what what role do white women play in society? Like, are are they girl bosses that can do anything or are they still like an exploited class? Of course, the answer is probably both. But um, those, you know, the ways that uh, we've always used famous people as these examples or as these actors that enact these moral questions that we're grappling with as a society. You know, we felt this way about Elizabeth Taylor. We felt this way about all sorts of people, you know, Marilyn Monroe. Um, These people, often women, become these flashpoints for these larger debates that people are trying to figure out um, in a broader sense. And I think Britney became that for, you know, how we talked about celebrity and sex um, 
in that amount of time. And, you know, it became immensely profitable to use her to talk about those things. And so people just did it (laughs) over and over. Yeah, it's absolutely true that the system and how it tends to categorize and classify people does change. And I and I think uh, that since Brittany, many artists have come along who have been praised for their embrace of sexuality and even fluidity in sexuality and gender. Lady Gaga comes to mind as a very popular example of that. And I want to mm-hmm. get your your thoughts on what changed in the system to make these criticisms shift away from that. Um. I actually might argue that I think it hasn't changed as much as we may like for it to have changed. Um, I haven't done enough research on Lady Gaga specifically to be able to speak to like how she crafted her celebrity to be, to escape those sorts of dialogues. I mean, I think just off the top of my head, um, she was always so, strange and while she was very sexy and you think about like the bad romance music video where she's wearing all of these hot lingerie combinations she was also really off-putting in a way that kind of it didn't seem like she was pandering to the male gaze because you know she was invoking such like strong and kind of off-putting aesthetics um but you know i think about billy eilish as an example of someone in the current era who got really famous as a teen and dressed in a way where she was like, I want to cover up. I don't want the conversation to be around my body. You know, I'm going to wear these baggy sweatpants, baggy sweatshirts. And then on the cover of, I forget which magazine, it could be Vanity Fair. Um, she came out in a bustier and all of that kind of thing. And people were like, whoa, Billie Eilish is hot. You know, like there's this sort of, there's still a deep discomfort um, with knowing what to do about the fact that we continue to sexualize young women um, who are minors for the most part, maybe not for the most part, but for a large part. Um, And yet we know that as a culture that is, morally wrong um so i think that's very much still playing out right now i mean i think also the conversations around social media and instagram and tiktok for young women also is an interesting manipulation of that in that these young women are producing their own images and of course they may be influenced by culture in all these different ways but they also again can see that as empowering in ways that in a similar way to how women in the raunch era or the girls gone wild are sometimes like, I feel like I'm in control of this image, even though it exists in this lineage of, of objectification, um, because I feel like, you know, I feel good about it. I'm producing it. So I think these things still feel very much up for debate to me. That's very fascinating for me to hear. And I'm glad you brought up Billie Eilish because I was literally going to ask you about Billie Eilish. Um, <laughs> and so we address the uh, the sexuality aspect, but there was more I wanted to kind of talk about with, like, you know, specifically that much criticism about young women in pop is really about control over a woman's body, voice, and mm-hmm. autonomy. We address that through the voice. We address that through the sexuality. But another aspect of Billie Eilish beyond the sexuality is that she's a currently uh, – a, a super popular female pop star and she's often criticized by largely conservative pundits because she encourages fans to vote and these critics say she makes music for teenage girls who aren't old enough to vote anyway so that she should just keep her mouth shut 
So I wanted to get your sense of how this system is continuing to evolve, you know, as we discuss even keeping some of the old things in place, how that's continuing to evolve to control women and their autonomy as we enter into 2023. Yeah. I mean, obviously, pundits being like, don't tell your your audience to vote. Like, voting is pretty much the most non-offensive thing you could ever tell anyone to do pretty much so the fact that people are freaking out about that is uh very telling um but i don't know i mean i think yeah i mean i think about how at the time that you know now that i think generally speaking people have a more a a more nuanced understanding of how Britney has suffered at the hands of the media and of public perception. And there's a sense that, you know, people have apologized, you know, like Perez Hilton apologized, all of these people who are so cruel to her um, have said, you know, we're not like that anymore. We'll never do this again. You know, we've, the Me Too movement has happened. We're so much better to women um, and yet, like at the time, it was interesting as a researcher to be reminded that people came after Britney not because they necessarily like had bloodlust or they didn't see it that way when they were doing that. They were they literally thought that Britney was going to destroy America. Like they did it out of a moral intensity. Um, and they thought that they were doing the right thing, that they were protecting people against negative forces. And I think that obviously like the idea of cancel culture has been like used as a dog whistle for all sorts of kind of bad faith political arguments. But I think in a certain way, in certain cases, and when like cancel culture as a phenomenon in celebrity history I think it'll be interesting to see how we look back on this time, given that I think the things motivating people now to quote unquote cancel people feel very similar to the ways that people were angry about Britney that we see as toxic back in the day. So again, I mean, maybe maybe it won't play out the same way that we see Britney now, but that to me was an interesting parallel. You know, it is worth noting that these people have apologized, but they certainly profited off of a larger system that does continue to exploit people. And that's and it's certainly. really important to keep that in mind um, that apologies can only take you so far that these changes have to come from a deeper systemic root level. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a, I mean, I think something that I really like about the community of Britney fans and of thinking about Britney in a, being one of many people who think about Britney uh, semi-professionally is that people are very rigorous about like, what are you gaining from talking about Britney? Like, do you like, you know, um, I forget, I think like on one of the comments on one of the documentaries that got released, um, Sam, Britney's husband was like, so are you going to donate that money to people who need to be released from their conservatorships? Like, you know, people are very kind of these questions about who's profiting off of what, like, Many fans I spoke to were like, I don't buy free Britney t-shirts because why would I give that money to some rando who's using it to profit? Like these, and I've I've had to answer to fans where they're like, 
why should we listen to you? Like, what are you gaining from this? And I'm like, yeah, I'm on this podcast because I write, you know, because I wrote this book. Like, I am gaining something from from talking about her. But you know, it's it's this ethical question that feels very out in the open in a way that that doesn't really it doesn't feel the same for other celebrities. I think it would be interesting to see how that gets brought into how we talk about other celebrities. So sure. Yeah. We, you know, you stand to gain, you know, from this because it's something that you wrote a book about, but you are an expert. And the reason why you wrote this book is because you are an expert and you're using that expertise to create an effect that you want um, to have. In this case, it's, you want to bring an artistic awareness to Britney Spears as someone who is beyond what the media has painted her for so long and that's an incredible thing so don't don't uh, diminish your, your you know yourself <laughs> for that um no no because, i mean i think no go for it sorry not to cut you off no no that's no because 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 it's ultimately you know we've seen how control has been a consistent presence throughout britney's career and the year after blackout was released she's forced into a conservatorship that lasted for 13 years it ended late last year but it's precisely the work of people like you who has brought that awareness and real cultural shifting conversations to how we perceive and respect someone's autonomy so kudos to you for being a major part of that and can you tell us more about the conservatorship and what exactly it meant for Britney's image yeah i mean i appreciate that and i think that you know of course i think and I think that to the extent that one does ask those questions about what you have to stand to gain from writing about something, it's not necessarily as a means of saying, like, don't, you can't, like, you know, or whatever. Um, but just more like, I think all journalists or writers should ask themselves that question. Like, it's just a part of writing and of producing culture that is very on the surface for writing about Britney in a way that it isn't about other subjects. But anyway, the conservatorship. So very shortly after Blackout came out, um, Britney's family, mostly her father, Jamie, moved to put her in a conservatorship, which is a legal arrangement that's primarily used for people with various forms of disabilities, um, primarily intellectual disabilities, that cedes all rights over things like their finances, but also over things like what they do every day, what medications they take, you know, whether they can get pregnant, um, et cetera, to their guardians who are more often than not their family. Um, and this conservatorship was sent to last until I think August, 2020, but it got extended. Um, which is part of the reason why this movement called the Free Britney movement um, gained so much traction because, you know, she was continuing to not be free. <laughs> and these arrangements, I think there's been a lot of um, discussion in disability studies about how conservatorship, conservatorships as a whole are you know, inherently ableist or inherently disempowering to people with disabilities. I think Brittany became kind of a flashpoint for this type of discussion because it is very rare for 
people who are placed in conservatorships to be making money. And so it's very rare for conservatorships to be a profitable endeavor, but it really was for her family and for her management. Um, and so luckily the movement or not the movement, but the conservatorship itself ended. Um, but you know, she was denied all sorts of rights for the last 13, 14 years, um, which has been horrible. You explore in your book how the critical narrative of Blackout has changed since its release. What changed about the criticism and why? Um, so at the time that Blackout came out, which we've discussed a little bit, people thought that Blackout was good. Um, people did like the music um, because it is really good. But they thought most critics thought that this was a fluke, like in the trajectory of Britney as a person and as an artist up until that moment, people were like, we are at the nadir, like we are in rock bottom. You know, the, the Associated Press prepared her obituary, like people thought that this was going to be the end. And so Blackout became kind of a stop along the demise of Britney in that they were like, you know, her songs... There was a, there's a certain expectation that when you do so, when a pop star does something quote unquote wrong or controversial, they put out like an acoustic song where they're like, I'm sorry, I'm this way or whatever that like using the sort of aesthetic hallmarks of vulnerability to respond to them. But Blackout doesn't do that at all. Like Blackout is like, I love to drink. I love to have sex. I love to party you know, kind of flying in these criticisms faces. And so I think people didn't really know what to make of it. And so I think the dominant narrative was, okay, well, there's this album out. It's pretty good, but this is a fluke. This is just, you know, her producers doing this. Britney herself couldn't have had much of an impact on it. Um, whereas now, I think partially because Blackout has been so influential in that many of the things that people found alienating about Blackout at the time, like its vocal modifications that we talked about earlier. Its production was very digital. Like there's not a whole lot of acoustic sounds on the album, a lot of synths. Um, and that it's club music, which is, it's dance music. It's, it's, you know, and that wasn't necessarily a real, you know, electro pop wasn't, and dance pop wasn't what was really popular at that time. So I think with all all of those things have totally changed now. Like people use auto-tune in an artistic way all the time. People use the hallmarks of electronic music, like dubstep drops and all that kind of thing often. Um, and then you even have avant-garde movements like PC music and like hyper-pop, which take these kind of qualities that Blackout has, like you know, hyper pitched up or pitched down um, vocal modifications or these really kind of like sharp alienating synths and make it this broader kind of avant-garde sound. And I think with all those things in mind, people felt prepared to understand that as this forward-looking aesthetic rather than as this fluke. Similarly, I think as we've had some distance from... 2007, I think people are more willing to understand 
you know, this album as being a more self-aware commentary. I think in some ways, I think there's aspects of this narrative, although it is more positive towards Britney, which I do really like, but they sort of still use the language of like, this is Britney's real self. This is Britney at her most authentic. She's telling her story um, in a way that I also think is kind of flawed, right? Because she didn't write pretty much any song on the album. I think she wrote on one, even though she executive produced it. Um, we don't really know what that means necessarily. Like, and we don't know. It's hard. I think when you look at the records of what studio time was like and how she couldn't be there all the time because she was dealing with so much, you know, I think she wasn't, it's hard to argue given what we know that this is like her telling her story on her own terms. And so I think in some ways I wrote this book to sort of reconcile these two really different narratives and to tell a story about blackout that feels like it could, that feels like it can honor, honor both things and tell a more complicated story about Britney's agency and about how agency manifests in pop music more broadly. So I personally know how frustrating it can be when people don't appreciate a work of art of its time, especially when the reasoning behind that could be uh, misogyny, sexism, or even when we talk about uh, the album in the context of club, you know, there's certainly a queer phobia in that as well. Of course. How do you personally feel about Blackout's critical narrative changing? Um, I mean, I think I alluded this to a little bit to the last in the last question. Um, but I think that I am glad that Blackout's like, you know, Blackout's in that rock and roll hall of fame. You know, I think that it would have been much harder to write this book, you know, 10 years ago even than it is now. I think it is really um, celebrated as a classic. And I think that that's correct. <laughs> I think that Blackout is a classic and did, you know, have all of these really important effects on pop music. Um, I think what you mentioned about homophobia and queerphobia is also really relevant in that at the time people were like, this is an album for the gays. Like they're only playing these in West Hollywood clubs. Like those are the only, you know, demographic of people that still like Britney. And that was an insult. Like that was a, and now that is, would be unthinkable. You know, you think about the new Beyonce album, which was written, you know, with a queer audience in mind and mining queer history and celebrating queer culture, um, particularly, you know, disco and all of that. Um, and in some ways, you know, now there's this whole discussion about queer baiting and about people, you know, dropping gay hints for profit, um, that is really insane to me how much that's changed from when Blackout came out. And it was with Blackout that Britney became kind of a queer icon, um, you know, like Judy Garland or what have you, um, which I also think is really interesting. But I think that's also another thing that we haven't talked about yet, but a reason why I think it's heartening that Blackout has become more critically acclaimed over time. So the homophobia and queerphobia and that the criticism that Britney Spears' music was only meant for the gay community is something that you explore in your book. And you kind of profile several different fans, uh, one of which who does subscribe to that notion, another which who views Britney Spears as a train wreck and only train wrecks listen to her music. Can you talk about those fans that you profile? 
Yeah, so um, the main... So, okay, so in 2007, it was kind of a transitional period for Britney fans because she is a celebrity was changing a lot. And the people who really loved her because she wrote these bouncy songs um, about being like a teenage girl in love, they were going to be pretty shocked by <laughs> what Britney was doing in 2007. And so I think I talk about how a particular um, fan site called World of Britney closed and shut down, which was the biggest Britney fan site of the time because um, the person who was running that site at the time, as he says, um, or he said publicly, that, you know, he's she's not the celebrity that she was before. You know, I think there was some... Uh, some minor crisis in which, you know, she had promised some behind the scenes stuff to, she'd done some kind of sweepstakes through the site, but she didn't really follow through. And so there was all sorts of kind of bad blood between the two of them, it seems. Um, And so there was sort of a gap in the market um, for Britney fans. And in that sort of gap, you see sort of the beginnings of Stan culture as we know it um, begin to emerge. And I talk about two figures within that sphere who represent what Stan culture has become in two different ways and who pioneered two different trajectories about how to be a fan in this new digital age. And one of them, his name is Jordan Miller. He's um, often kind of attributed as the progenitor of the hashtag free Britney, he had the site and still has the site called breathe heavy, who is the biggest or which is the biggest, um, Britney forum. It survived social media. It still exists. I did an AMA on there pretty recently. Um, and he started the site when he was 13 and really played like he was like, there was a what he what attracted him to the fan world was this kind of intensity where he was like, I'm gonna be on top. I'm gonna have the best fan site. Like I'm gonna break all of these scoops. I'm gonna get in with her team. Like I'm gonna compete with the tabloids in a huge way. Um, and at that point, you know, and now you see him on documentaries whenever there's like a Britney fan, you know there's something in major news networks about Britney fans, you will see an interview with him. Like he's received this notoriety based on his fandom that never could have happened before now, you know? And the other person I talk about is Kara Cunningham, who went viral in 2007 for the video, leave Britney alone. Um, And, you know, she also got really famous as a Britney fan um, and because of her fandom, but unlike Jordan, she was subjected, she was visibly queer. She was, it was pre her transition. And so she was presenting as more femme, but in a way that didn't align with people's expectations for femininity at that time. So she was subjected to a lot of transphobic abuse, um, from major media, from people on the internet, you know, she was really torn apart in a huge way. And now many of the things that she 
the ways that she spoke, the sort of um, slang that she used, like her unapologetic queerness and kind of affront to traditional norms of gender and sexuality are huge hallmarks of how we think of stands today. And yet, you know, she was not treated as the kind of touchstone that she was. Um, so I think the fact that these two fans kind of, I feel like Britney served as this bridge between the stand culture that we, that we know now and between the stand culture that we know now and what, fandom look like looked like in the early internet there's so much more i want to explore with you on that because it's incredibly (laughs) fascinating but um you know certainly we want people to read the book because you know (laughs) absolutely it's a fantastic book so uh so after a whole litany of really tough questions we're gonna end on one more what's your favorite song from the album oh amazing um okay so Huh. Um, I think my favorite song has to be the first song that I fell in love with on Blackout, which was Get Naked, I've Got a Plan. Um, first of all, I love a parenthetical in a title. Um, you know, it's like get naked, but good to know that you have a plan. You know, you're not just going to streak. You <laughs> have some vision behind it. Um, yeah, I think the production on that song is really crazy. We didn't talk about this that much, but I talk a lot in the book about Danja, who produced most of the album, and I feel like it really shows off what makes the album great production-wise. I think also Gimme More is amazing. Um, You know, it's a classic, her song, but I feel like it's so overrated that it has become underrated, and when you listen to the song, it's easy to forget how weird it is. Like, the... A, it's Britney, bitch, iconic, amazing, you know, changed. You could even argue that that line changed her career. But, you know, that song goes like verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And then there's a one and a half minute outro, like on a number one hit. That's insane. Like no songs are structured like that. You know, it's certainly not, you know, uh, Baby One More Time or the Max Martin hits, you know. So... I think I would pick those two as my top two from Blackout. Natasha, this was a fantastic and very enlightening conversation. You you have written an amazing book. You should be incredibly proud. And I thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for saying that. It was really a joy to talk to you. So I, yeah, I hope you have a good rest of your day. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Natasha Lasky. Her latest book is Britney Spears' Blackout and is published by Bloomsbury Academic.